viruses are really cool because they're so tiny, they're invisible to us, and yet with just a tiny set of genes, they're able to cause serious disease or even death in our population. And we are so much larger, so much more complex, and we can be taken down by something that has, what, five genes? In the case of some viruses, it's amazing. Welcome to Beyond the Bench. Uh, my name is Jess Tran, and I'm going to be one of your hosts for today's episode. I'm a microbiology PhD student at the University of California, Riverside, and we've got some wonderful people here today to talk about some science. Um, joining me today is one of our hosts, Madison Sankovitz. She's usually the main host for this podcast, and she's served on many of our episodes, so you'll probably recognize her voice. She is also a graduate student researcher, a PhD student at UC Riverside in entomology. But most importantly, today we are joined by Dr. Juliet Morrison, who is an assistant professor in microbiology at UC Riverside. And we are so happy to have her. First of all, just because I, as a microbiologist, really appreciate bacteria, microbes, fungi, all of these things. But I didn't really understand viruses all that well until I took a virology course in my undergraduate class and learned about how weird they are. And we'll talk about how weird they are in a bit. But first of all, um, welcome, Juliet. It's so nice to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Jess and Madison. I'm excited to be here and excited to um, talk to you about science. I love it just as much as you do. <laughs> awesome. Well, first of all, I guess maybe we should ask about your role as a virologist, someone who studies virology. So for your position, what do you do on the day-to-day? -day? Well, I do a lot of, uh, well, let me tell you what I do. I did pre-COVID-19. So sure, sure, of course. Daily um, activities were managing and leading the lab, teaching classes, mentoring my graduate students, as well as writing grants and writing manuscripts. And I also did research in lab as well. So I'm doing wet lab stuff on day-to-day. Well, then COVID-19 happened and that changed things a lot. So these days I'm mostly just doing Zoom meetings and I've actually been working with other um, faculty volunteers to develop a certified COVID-19 testing facility on campus because, I mean, if we're ever going to reopen properly, we need to be able to test our students, our staff, our faculty. And so that has wow. been taking a, a great deal of my time. And uh, what else? am I doing a lot these days? Well, that one takes up a lot. And then there are all of those meetings. And I am trying to ramp back up research in my lab because we had taken a break um, for the past three months. Mm. So that's what that's going, that's what's going on with us. I was just going to ask, so along those lines, I know there's a lot of concerns right now about students coming back on campus. And I don't know how involved you are in any of that decision-making or anything, but what are the primary concerns for um, school starting back up again in the fall and everyone being together? And I mean, is it going to be really feasible to test people, to test students? And then how, how are we going to keep students safe? Maybe that's like a really big loaded question. <laughs> a really, really large question. And I don't have the details because I'm not involved in that aspect of, you know, um, 
of the campus. But I do think that it's really important. I, at this point now, fall is so close. I don't believe that we can really, re, we will be able to reopen anytime soon. I, I, that is my personal belief because COVID-19 cases are soaring. We haven't managed to flatten anything and we don't have, we don't have adequate testing at any level, which is why I think it's important that we have testing that we can control at the school. But the whole process has been a very long one because you have to get FDA approval and all these other things, um, which of course is important and we should do these things. But yeah, Madison, I don't, yeah. I don't see it happening anytime. Right. Yeah. And UC Riverside is going to be teaching online in the fall, correct? Mostly. Um, it seems that we, it will mostly be that. And that yeah. there will be some mm. in-person activities, maybe labs or something, but for the most part online. And I think that that's the safest approach. I, do, I really don't think that people should be congregating in rooms during a pandemic. Yes. So this testing center that you're helping to set up, is that going to be um, physically in research labs that are already on campus or in a different building space or where's that going to be? It's going to be in the uh, medical research building in um, some space that they had for um, incubators and because they have this whole um, small business program but that has been generously donated to the COVID-19 testing effort. So this wouldn't be a this would be a one-off thing hopefully. I'm hoping that COVID-19 doesn't become some sort of endemic thing. But yeah, that's what we need to do. We need to have tests and we need to be able to, to get the test results back really quickly because then otherwise you can't contact trace. And these days I'm like reading up and seeing that it's taking five, seven days for people to get their test results back. By that yep. time, you probably pass it on to multiple people if you were infected. It's, it's really sad and unnecessary. We thank you a ton for helping with efforts to open testing site on campus. I heard rumors about that happening, but I wasn't sure like where people are. I was wondering how people could do that in the first place, because you mentioned you need the FDA approval, and I'm sure that ordering the tests and the kits required is some daunting task, at least. Yes, exactly. It, it, no, it, takes a, it took a lot of time, and this is not something I'm doing by myself. It's a whole group of people who are putting a lot of effort into it. Um, we were able to get um, approval for this because during the whole pandemic, they have relaxed the rules for what can be considered a clinical testing lab. And mm. because we're also doing this in conjunction with the with student health, who actually already has like um, clinical lab certification and are able to take clinical samples, that, that was how we were able to overcome that hurdle. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so that's a huge undertaking right now in your life and in the past few months. So before this all happened, before the pandemic happened, um, can you tell us what your lab's research focuses on in terms of viruses? Okay, so we study emerging viruses and such as influenza. So we do seasonal influenza, but also um, avian influenza, which one would consider an emerging virus. And I also study flaviviruses like dengue virus and yellow fever virus. And so in my lab, we have uh, two themes on what, so everything is host 
virus interactions. But on one hand, we study how viruses antagonize the host. And so that's one theme. And then on the other hand, we study how host, the host responds to viruses and how this host response can either promote disease or fight disease. And so it's two different approaches to uh, the very same problem, basically. What are some problems that the virus can cause for the host or the host can cause for the virus, for example? Okay, so viruses in themselves are, you know, very simple, very simple little units, but they can come in and do a variety of different things depending on what type of virus it is. Like some viruses, you get infected, um, it causes cancer or it causes warts. Other viruses will come in and have a, you know, kill the cells that infect causing some sort of cytopathic effect and that is problematic. Some viruses, however, even after they're cleared by your immune system can set up a state in your body that a dysregulated immune state that that in itself is causing the disease. So in the case of something like influenza, in, in a, the majority of people you get mild influenza, but for some people, because they have a very vigorous inflammatory response in their lungs to this viral infection, it's actually the inflammatory response that's driving the tissue damage that you might see in a severe case of flu. And that's exactly what we're seeing now also for in COVID-19 cases, that a mm -hmm. lot of the, the damage you're seeing is host-mediated. So viruses can cause damage, but also the host reaction to that virus can also lead to further damage. And that's what that's actually how I started studying host responses, actually. Like, I used to spend more of my time focusing on how viruses antagonize host systems. But mm -hmm. at one point in my postdoc, I was reading some clinical, um, some clinical documents and realized that back, back then I was studying dengue virus, and I was reading up on, on dengue, and I, I read that even after you can no longer detect viremia in the blood, so even when we have managed to clear virus, you can actually then develop the severe dengue. So dengue shock syndrome or dengue hemorrhagic fever. And this is happening after we can no longer detect virus in the blood. So that tells you that it's not the virus that's driving this disease. And it just blew my mind. I mean, honestly, I was like, I need to go do another postdoc. I need to learn all about this. <laughs> so I... I switched fields and I went and studied um, the transcriptional responses to viruses and then to see if I could find like, gene expression signatures that could predict disease outcome um, in, in animals. Wow. Yeah. So this is really interesting. Th this is probably why um, we're seeing people respond so differently to COVID-19, right? I mean, I'm sure it has a lot to do with other environmental factors and everything. But um, yeah, it seems to me like almost every day in the news, I'm hearing more about, oh, like now people are having these symptoms. Now this age group is having these symptoms. Oh, here's a new symptom. And um, yeah, it's hard to keep track of. And in my mind, I'm pretty much, luckily I haven't um, contracted coronavirus uh, yet, hopefully never. But I'm just like, okay. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Like, okay, if I get this, like, literally anything could happen. Anything could happen. And I think that's what people aren't realizing. Like, initially, they were talking about, well, kids are okay, kids are fine. And then you start finding out that we have these um, students who are like 14, 15, and they're getting these 
crazy multi, I don't know, crazy symptoms that you would never expect in a, from a respiratory infection, especially in a young person. But we don't know a lot about this disease. And so we have to be particularly careful and really vigilant actually about protecting ourselves. Definitely. Yeah. So um, in your lab, how do you go about studying um, like the host response and um, the virus side of things? Like what sort of methods do you use? Okay, so one of them is to, to figure out how the virus um, antagonizes the interferon response. And so the interferon response is a, one of the first um, responses that our cells have towards a viral infection. And interferons are these antiviral um, cytokines that our cells make. And they can, with the interferon response, you can end up squashing viral replication. So viruses have evolved means of actually fighting back. It's this, um, you know, arm, it's an evolutionary arms race, basically. And so we have been studying different viruses and trying to figure out the, me the mechanisms that they use to antagonize different aspects of the interferon response. Many of the techniques I use include, do a lot of molecular biology because we have to you know, clone various genes or clone various viruses. Because if we find a, you know, like if we identify a gene that a virus has and we, we need to be able to knock it out or change it in some way to see if it still has that impact. So we do things like that. We do cytokine assays, a lot of cell culture, um, animal work. So we, we do use mouse models um, for a lot of our research and uh, um, techniques like Western blot, equipment of precipitation, that kind of thing. And then on the other hand, when I'm studying the host response, we either do cell culture experiments or animal experiments. And then we are taking the, the um, lungs, let's say, if we're doing an influenza experiment of the mice and then looking at the changes in the immune cell populations in the lung. We're also doing things like, um, like RNA-seq to figure out if we can pick up different changes that could maybe be predictive of how the mouse would have, you know, would develop disease or not develop disease. And so that's a lot of flow cytometry, cell culture, and uh, animal work, basically. Okay, yeah, so a whole host of different things. Yeah. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just kind of throw the kitchen sink at it. And I also have a, a real love for older techniques, actually. Like, I think that there's, so, there's some, such beauty in some of the older things that we do. Like, um, people have taken to measuring viral replication using, um, you know, RT-PCR, but that doesn't tell us everything. And so I'm kind of old school and new school because I believe that you should be measuring infectious virus using uh, an assay, like a plaque assay. Mm. And that's actually why we're getting a lot of this conflicting information these days about COVID-19 because people are like, it can stay around forever. It's, we found it on the surface. But well, you found fragments of its RNA. You didn't actually find live virus. And that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. People need to know that just because you find the remnants of a virus doesn't mean that that virus is there or that virus is infectious and can harm you. So I also like old school stuff. I mean, I also agree. I've all, I've, um, I've definitely done experiments where it's like, you can see a peak 
in your data and say, oh, that might be it. But then you don't really know until you test the live cells or test the live. I work with bacteria, so I usually test those, but like live, I guess I don't want to cause any, I don't want to stir up anybody by saying the viruses are alive or dead, but like viruses that are active essentially. So that's really cool. So yeah, you do a lot of, um, you do a lot of molecular work. You do a lot of live cell culture work. You put that all together to tell stories. I think that's really comprehensive and cutting edge even in, you know, the modern era of molecular biology, but, you know. Oh, thanks, Jess. <laughs> Actually, I was, I was wondering, like, I mean, you mentioned this before, and I wanted to explore that a little bit more, like, what got you interested in studying viruses in general? Like, we talked a little bit about host viral interactions and why you're so interested in this particular interaction, but why viruses, period? Huh. I've always been interested in human disease, and I, as a kid, I, I was such a science geek. I, I used to read encyclopedias for fun. Um, talk about nerd, right? Oh my. <laughs> but I never actually thought that, I never thought of science as a career. Like, I was not exposed to much of uh, that at all. So I, I was training to be a physician, basically. And then I but I did perform very well in my science classes. And at some point I decided that I wanted to move abroad and I went to Bard College and it was there that I actually discovered science, science research because they had this program like the immediate early, okay, I can't remember the name of the program, but it allowed you to, to do work study in labs um, as a freshman and as, as a sophomore. And that, that was it for me. I was like, oh my God, I like asking questions. I like coming up with methods to answer the questions. And I really enjoy getting the answers to my questions. And that is what got me into science and scientific research. And it was actually a summer internship in a virology lab that got me interested in viruses. So it turns out that it's the experiences that you have that push you towards these things, right? It's... Um, if you can't see it, you won't even imagine it for, you know, the vast majority of us, myself included. Definitely. Yeah. Viruses are really cool because they're so tiny. They're invisible to us. And yet with just a tiny set of genes, they're able to, to cause serious disease or even death in our population. And we are so much larger, so much more complex, and we can be taken down by something that has, what, five genes? In the case of some viruses, it's amazing. Yeah, it's so I've crazy. I've, yeah, I remember when I took that virology class, I also TA'd a virology class like last uh, winter quarter and I kept having to explain like, yes, viruses are very, very tiny. Their genomes are so small, orders of magnitude smaller than humans, but they cram so many genes in that small space and they have all these different techniques to express as many things as possible. So even if you have a small genome, you can express sometimes as much as a bacteria can, so. Oh yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think this pandemic is really interesting because it's opening people's eyes to how vulnerable we are to viruses. I think humans are used to thinking of humans as the organisms that rule the world, you know? Um, and yeah, I, we weren't prepared for a pandemic in general as a globe. And yeah, I mean, like climate change is a thing mostly because of humans. And so that like shows us our power, but like we literally have the power to change the climate of the earth. But then like a virus comes along and can just wipe us out. And yeah, I think like 
so many people are rightfully shocked by that, but also it's like really opening people's eyes to it. Yeah. Yeah. I and I think, think a lot of people are also have become more interested in bio virology because of this too. <laughs> definitely have seen a, uh, I've seen an uptick in interest for sure. But I actually want to go back to your climate change thing. Yes, humans, we, we have changed the climate. And in changing the climate, we're actually making these pandemics more likely, I, I would have to say. Not necessarily something like COVID-19, but something like dengue or yellow fever or anything that's mosquito-borne. They are, now, we are, now that places are warming up, um, you're seeing mo certain mosquitoes um, in areas that you would never have seen them before. So they're moving into more temperate climates. And so then we'll have the capacity then for things like dengue to not just be tropical, or, and subtropical, it will move into areas wherever its vector is, which is the 80s Egyptian mos mosquito. So many of the changes that we have made as humans to this earth are coming back to basically bite us because, ah, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's tragic. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um... So, so many consequences of climate change, which could be a whole nother hundred episodes in of itself. But that's, a, yeah, that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. I guess, so your, your job um, at UCR is a professor. Um, what, what are some of the best parts of the job and some of the hardest challenges of the job? Um, okay, the, the best parts of the job are the research and teaching. I, um, I actually hadn't realized how much I would love teaching until coming to UCR, but uh, the students here are great and they ask good questions and it makes me very excited to teach them. And of course, I love my research, so there's that. Um, the challenges of being a professor, especially a junior one, is that there's just never enough time to do anything. And there's a lot of paperwork to keep on top of. And it's not necessarily something you, anyone teaches you. <laughs> I, I really do believe that we should have classes in grad school to teach you how to manage a budget or how do you talk to a student who is, you know, struggling with something like you, you know, we need actual management skills. And so that has been the hardest challenge for me, actually, is trying to teach myself how to best interact with my students and my collaborators and, and so forth. So, Juliet, where are you from originally? Oh, I'm originally from Kingston, Jamaica. Um, I moved to the States when I was 17 to go to college. And um, yeah, beautiful island in the sun. Yeah. I miss it. Wow. <laughs> so, so you um, said before that you, whenever you joined that lab as an undergraduate, that really like opened your eyes to research and got you into research. From that point on, did you know you wanted to become a professor? Or before that, did you have some um, idea of being a professor for your career or? No, actually I didn't. I was just, do I, I went through college just enjoying science. And then um, one of my professors was like, you should apply to a PhD program. I was like, okay, sure. I will apply to a PhD program. And that's what happened there. And it was during the PhD that I started, I was still not decided about being a professor actually, because it's, academia is really hard and there are so few professor jobs, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I've always liked to have a plan B, 
But as I got more and more into research, the more I realized I, I just want, I enjoy doing it. I love it. And I want to get other people involved because science is amazing. And I, I worry about the scientific literacy of this country a lot. Oh boy. Yeah. It could probably be another episode in of itself too. Actually, since you moved so far from home for college and um, to pursue the rest of your career, like what, how did you feel moving to a new place as an undergrad and going through the U.S. education system? It was eye-opening. Um, I moved from a country that is, you know, primarily Black um, to, to America, which, I, you know, like I had never, you, you watch television and you get American media, but you don't actually realize just how segregated the society is in so many ways and so that was eye-opening for me and was a it took quite an adjustment i'm not sure if i'm st adjusted still but it was also a great experience though like i really enjoyed my undergraduate life like i it, i got really involved in student government and doing things that i had never thought of doing in the first place and it gave me a lot of confidence to go out there in the world so yeah, overall it was a positive, but yeah, there was a culture shock for sure coming to America and moving all around the States. Now I've lived in New York, I've lived in New York City, upstate New York, Riverside, and each one takes some adjusting. Yeah. What were you moving around a lot for? Did you go to schools in different places? Yeah, so I went to, yeah, for undergrad, I went to Bard College, which is side of, sort of upstate New York. And then I went to Columbia University for my PhD, so New York City. And then I had a, I stayed in New York City for my first postdoc, which was at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. And then I wanted to, when I told you that story about me wanting to switch fields altogether, I found a lab in um, Seattle. And so I moved and I went there, enjoyed the experience somewhat. The lab eventually, well, the lab environment was not very good, but the um, city of Seattle was lovely and beautiful and green. And after that, I moved back to New York for a bit as junior faculty and used that, those two years to just try to figure out where exactly I wanted to live and what kind of school I was looking for to, to teach in, basically. So moving around was for my career, for sure. So what advice do you have to, for students who are looking to get into science or who maybe are starting out in science um, and who want to continue their career in science? I think the, the, the biggest thing to, hope to try to do is to get research experience. Like you want to be able to see yourself, to see if how well you perform in a lab or you know, at a computer if you're doing something bioinformatic, but you want to get that experience and you want to be able to interact with people who are actually doing it currently. So being in a lab where you can see what grad students actually do, what postdocs actually do, what a professor actually does when they're not in your class teaching you is important. And it's also necessary, I think, at this point, if you want to then go and apply for a PhD to mm -hmm. eventually become a faculty member. So my biggest advice is try to get research experience as early on as possible and try to get more than one. Um, the other advice is form uh, good peer groups. I think that's important to spend time with people who have similar interests to you and who are, all, who are equally motivated. I've, I only interact with people who are positive about things. So 
because I find that you can easily get into sort of a very negative space if you surround yourself with negative people and then you start doubting yourself and you start you stop aiming for what you actually want so that is um, another piece of advice I have it's like surround yourself with more positive people that and is great advice okay for sure <laughs> I'm happy to be as part of the SciComm group we've got Madison we got uh, Jesus and Nathan all these wonderful people that love to do what we do just right. throw that out there that's awesome no that's exactly what we, that's what you need like I be it a study group or just people that you can go have a you know a drink with and unwind or bitch about stuff but ultimately <laughs> having that group where you know people have your back and can you know review your CV for you and read your papers for you and it's really a mutually beneficial um, relationship that's what has kept me sane through all my years it's honestly my peer group mm -hmm. yeah that that's golden having a good peer group and like yeah I think it is easy to sort of get bogged down in things with science I mean especially like what you study you know I can imagine it's really easy to get depressed about the state of the world oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what's happening especially right now but you know at the end of the day we're all doing what we're doing because we love it you know it's not not for the pay or anything like that <laughs> certainly um, yeah so that's that's really awesome just wanted to make sure um you've got a twitter account right i do yes cool at jumo doctor so j-u-m-o-v-r awesome well for our listeners you should go follow her she's got some great takes yeah um and you know, I hope that you don't have to be um, doing all this coronavirus stuff for too much longer. You know, who knows how much longer it's going to be. But thank you for all of the work that you're putting into that. Like, yeah, we just cannot thank you enough. And we hope for your sake and everyone else's sake that you can get back to doing your other research sooner rather than later. Um, yeah, but it's just, it's been really awesome to talk to you today and to learn about what you've been doing. And yeah, you're just such a positive force on campus. So mm -hmm. thanks for being, <laughs> thanks for being you. Yeah. Editing for this episode was done by me, Jess Trin. Logo design is by Miwa Shirai. Additional help came from Madison Sankovitz. This podcast is supported by Science for Citrus Health and the UC Riverside Graduate Student Association. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Bench, a production from SciComm at UCR. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash SciComm UCR. Thanks again for listening.